It's my great privilege this morning to introduce Noemi Vega. Where is she? There she is. So Noemi is the regional director for InterVarsity, which is a major, major university ministry that had its origin in revival yes. in the 1800s. Mm-hmm. And great waves of missionaries went out through InterVarsity. And InterVarsity is doing a fantastic job in San Antonio and in Noemi's region. And Noemi also is the author of a book called Hermanas. Yes. And um, it's just a very, very good book. And Noemi's part of our church, and we love you, and we're just welcoming you. Let's clap Thank for her. You. Welcome her Thank you. warmly. Thank you. Um, I just want to say thank you to the church community for inviting me to share the word with you this morning. As um, the invitation from John Arelli, our pastor, was to uh, speak on revival. And I was like, oh no, what does that mean? There's so many ways. Um, if you don't know me, I've been on staff with University Christian Fellowship for 13 years. I've been praying for revival for college students since 2004 uh, when the Lord gave me the stream of uh, students leaving my university. And in the middle of that dream, I started to cry. And then I woke up from that dream with actual tears. And I was like, oh, Lord, what are you doing in my heart? And, and that was the beginning of uh, just years and years of prayer for Jesus to transform the lives of college students. Um, when I'm not doing that, I like to kickbox. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah, just uh, have fun with friends and stuff. So um, just so you know a little bit about me, so you know I'm not just this talking head. So what is revival? Okay, uh, if you don't know something, it's something to know about me is I'm a little quirky. So just come on, come along. It's okay, you can laugh. It's okay. So um, what is the definition of revival? Uh, a lot of people are asking, um, are seeking this revival journey right now within our Varsity Christian Fellowship, and something that we have identified as a definition is a new season of breakthrough in word deed and power that would usher in a new normal of kingdom fruitfulness. And yeah, praise the Lord, right? It's such a cool, ah. (laughs) And um, at the center of it, you'll notice is love because um, we've noticed as uh, scholars within InterVarsity, outside of InterVarsity, they've noticed that revivals are characterized by these three core things, the preaching of the word of God, um, the living out of the word of God, that those are deeds. So our mana bags are that. And then, um, The power gifts, which is what Mission Vineyard is trying to teach us, but a lot of people within Christianity even doubt the power gifts exist today. And so we get this premise of this definition from Romans 15, verses 18 through 19, which says, uh, this is um, Paul who's writing, and he says, I don't dare speak about anything except what Christ has done through me to bring about the obedience of the Gentiles. He did it, but what I've said and what I've done by the power of signs and wonders and by the power of God's spirit. So even Paul, our scholastic theologian, you know, he's like the one that a lot of people are studying right now. Even he, especially he, was transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit and through that was given the ability, the gift to um, empower others with the power of the Holy Spirit. So I like to also think of revival as a coming back to life. Something that was dead is being brought to life. And in my life, there have been so many things that God has brought back to life. Um, I don't know that this church needs it so much, but I wanted to give a little bit of a history of background of revival. So do revivals happen after Christ? 
You can answer. Yes, they do. Of course they do. <laughs> I don't think we'd eat that, but believe it or not, some of my classmates uh, in, in seminary, they question whether they do. So just, you know, brief history. Even within the first 200 years of the early church being established, the early Christian church, um, the power miracles were being questioned. So Justin Martyr writes, for numberless demoniacs throughout the whole world, and in your city, many of our Christian men exercising them in the name of Jesus Christ, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate, have healed and do heal, rendering helpless and driving the possessing devils out of the men. Though they could not be cured by any other exorcist and those who used incantations and drugs. So you might think, okay, this is a, this is a different time period. People were more used to spiritual things back then. Um, but there was even Augustine, a couple hundred years later, had to say, um, it is sometimes objected that miracles, which Christians claim to have occurred, no longer happen. It is a simple fact that there is no lack of miracles even in our day. And the God who works the miracles we read of in the scriptures uses any means and manner he chooses. So uh, the early church fathers even, say, even justifying that, that that miracles still happen to this day. Um, and then at the turn of the Reformation, uh, Wesley, John Wesley in the 18th century was creating an apologetic also for the power gifts to happen. I do not recollect any scripture wherein we are taught that miracles were to be confined within the limits of either of the apostolic or the Cyprianic age or of any time period. I have not observed in the, either in the Old Testament or the New Testament at all of this kind. So what does this mean? This means that miracles do happen this, to this day. And we have seen revival happening in the U.S. many times. But one of the ones that I really like is the story of revival from Azusa Street. Raise your hand if you're familiar with the Azusa Street revival. A lot of us are. Mission Vineyard, yes, yes. Um, but for those who don't know, the Azusa Street revival was uh, started with a couple of people that were really praying. But the main one, his name was William Seymour. And he was an African-American man born in Louisiana in 18. 1870. He was born to freed slaves, and he taught, he self-taught himself how to read and to write. And in this time, he began to cultivate this learning and this desire to hear about the Word of God. He read the Bible. He would pray. He would fast. And in 1906, he was convinced to be a pastor and go to Los Angeles and start a church in Los Angeles. So William Seymour moves all the way from, he had been an itinerant preacher after um, living in Louisiana, being raised in Louisiana, but he went from where he was in the Midwest, relocated to Los Angeles, there to, to pastor a church, and then boom, nobody wants him. Nobody wants him in this church. So what does he do? He becomes homeless, actually. People don't want him to preach. He's African-American preaching in this diverse community. Nobody wants him. He becomes homeless. What does he do? He starts to pray and he starts to fast. And that's all he does. He begins to pray and to fast. And after some time, People that were following his um, preaching journey, his teaching journey, also prayed to other friends, pray and fast with him. And one person from the holiness movement houses him in his home, and in their home, they begin these prayer meetings. And these prayer meetings are characterized by just a longing for the Word of God, a longing for the um, Holy Spirit to touch uh, them and to minister to their hearts. They just pray. 
and they can't seem to stop praying. And suddenly, uh, one of the house guests gets the gift of tongues, which is the gift of languages, and you can speak these heavenly languages. And the Pentecostal movement is said to have started in this tiny little home of people, regular people, just praying together. And out of that, um, a couple years later, just two years later, uh, there was the Sousa Street Revival with people, 500, 700, 900 people coming weekly just to get a taste of what was happening there. And the beautiful thing is that it was a multi-ethnic movement. It wasn't confined to just the black community, the Latino community in downtown LA, to the um, white community. It was multi-ethnic. And the funny thing is that it wasn't intentionally multi-ethnic. It's not like William Seymour was like, and the gospel is about reconciliation, because it is. But it was just what the Holy Spirit was doing. The Spirit of God was uniting and reviving people back to God and back to each other. So it was this powerful moment just characterized by love at the center of the Word of God being preached, deeds being done, justice happening, and the power of God healing miraculously. And this was in the early 1900s. Revivals are happening now, and people are praying for revival now. Um, When... Uh, In 2007, I was two years into my staff career, and life was really, really hard. Um, I had a lot of family problems and ministry problems. So I I was two years into my staff career, and I lost half of my student leaders. Um, We went from about 20 to 10, and then by the end of that year, I had eight. Um, During that time, we found out about my father's infidelity. Uh, My brother was... uh, getting into alcoholism and drug abuse. And my family was just very unstable. I felt like I had to take care of my family. And yet at the same time I lived two hours away, I felt like I had to take care of my ministry. And all of these things I was holding on to in that season of darkness, the Lord was saying, what are you going to do, Noemi? What are you going to do? Well, I'll show you what to do. Just pray. Just be with me and pray. So in that season, I learned to pray. Um, I could do nothing except pray. And I was praying, Lord, would you please bring back to life my family, bring back to life my brother, and bring back to life the ministry that you have given me. Revival is God bringing us back to life with him. And Jesus, last week we saw that Jesus was tempted in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. And in that season of temptation, that was intentional, um, the the Lord strengthened his calling and his ministry. Right after that fasting and praying season, Jesus came back and immediately, Luke records, he started to preach with this anointing that had not been exhibited before in his life. In Luke 4, verses 14 through 15 and 18 through 19, I like to think of this as Jesus. And Jesus has a clarity to say, um, The following things from Isaiah 61. I'm going to start in verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. And this is what Jesus said in verse 18 from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he cuts out the second part, the last part of Isaiah 61, uh, verses 1 and 2. He cuts out the last part, which says, and God's vengeance will come, something like that. And it's so funny that he cuts that last part out because... 
I think what, there are many reasons for it, but my personal opinion is that I think God really, Jesus really wants people to focus on these things that he's doing today. We don't have to worry about God vindicating us, about God bringing what we need to him. All we need to do is to seek Jesus because revival is Jesus. Revival is proximity to Jesus. It's relationship with Jesus. And Jesus says, today revival has come because I am with you. The anointing of Jesus and the Holy Spirit is available now to us because we are close to him in proximity to him. The good news to the poor that Jesus brings is that we ought to care for one another and support one another. We, um, If there's a person that's hungry, we we give them food. If there's a person that needs clothing, we clothe them. This is good news. But the good news of salvation for the poor in spirit is that we are able to live in this revival glory with God, that Jesus is the one that gives us this new life, this new way of being. Um, Jesus proclaims freedom from the prisoners. That means that those revival looks like those who are captive in anything that holds them back are set free in Jesus, captive by fear, by anything that is blocking them from experiencing fullness of life, that can be set free in Jesus. Sight for the blind, that physical miracles can and do happen. Jesus says, I will set the oppressed free, and people think that this also means financial justice happening of those that are stuck in eternal debt. Um, and then that the year of the Lord's favor is here. God is with us. These are all signs of revival that Jesus is pointing us to. Um, but what does revival look like in the Bible? If we, as you've been a follower of Jesus for a while, um, if you have been, you will see in scripture that there's so many times when Jesus brings people back to life, people back to him. And every time there's moments in Jesus's life when he goes away to pray, Right after this mission statement, Jesus heals a blind man, and he starts to cast out demons. He starts to heal the sick. And um, right after all of that ministry, in verse 42, chapter 4 of Luke, he says, At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. Um, the people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns. We see this pattern of Jesus uh, showing us we pray first, and then we can go out and minister. When we seek revival, we pray first. When we seek healing in any aspect of our lives, we pray first, and then we go out in the power of God and the Holy Spirit. Uh, Gypsy Smith was uh, also this person, this revival leader, and he said, um, he was asked once, uh, how do you make revival happen? And Gypsy Smith said, go home, lock yourself in your room, kneel down in the middle of your floor, draw a chalk mark all around yourself, and ask God to start that revival inside that chalk mark. When he answered your prayer, the revival will be on. Isn't that cool? That's so crazy. That's so cool. Also, I like it because it's kind of like practical, you know. I'm not seeking the Lord for revival for everybody. I'm seeking the Lord for revival just within the chalk. And that postures my heart to be able to receive from the Lord what he wants to do in my life, what he wants to do in the lives of others. It, Jesus teaches this pattern to his disciples as well. Um, Jesus forever defeated death on the cross. The cross and the resurrection is what brings eternal revival to us. Um, the resurrection is the power that 
Jesus has given to us as well to share with him. But that power, he asked his disciples to wait for that power. In Acts chapter 1, the very first thing that Luke records that his disciples ought to do is to wait and to pray. In chapter 1, verse 4, he says, on one occasion, Acts 1, verse 4, on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. And as soon as the disciples were baptized by the Holy Spirit, they began to um, minister to each other in the languages, in their heart languages. They began to have the, the ability to pray for miracles, and miracles would happen. And these crazy awesome things would go on and happen. Um, but really, I like my favorite story of revival in the Bible is from Cornelius. So we're going to enter into the story of Cornelius a little bit deeper here. And we have a video for Cornelius that I'd like to show you. It's a little bit of um, taking a, an old video and, uh, and taking it and adapting it to this one of my favorite bands. They're called the Apologetics. They take popular songs and then they just write Christian things, you know, around it, Christian stories, which is kind of funny. Sorry for the lack of quality. The quality is a little bad, but here it is. This is the story of Cornelius. There was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly.
Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And I think it does a better job of explaining the story than I can. Um, but it's this beautiful sign of when one life is transformed, it, you can't help it, but everything else is transformed around you. Um, and revival, in, as I've been mentioning, revival begins with consecration. Consecration is just a fancy way of saying you're setting aside your time to be at one with the Lord, to be in holiness with God. We see this consecration happening in Acts 10 uh, verses uh, 1 and two, where we are introduced to Cornelius, and he is a God-fearing man. He's pagan from Rome, which means he actually didn't grow up Jewish. He didn't grow up hearing about the Old Testament prophets, about the revival of God, the, this God that could transform and save. He didn't grow up with any of that, but he somehow was connected to God, the, this God that was um, that he was longing for, that he was uh, hoping to get, come to know. In verse 10, it says, He and all his family were devout and God-fearing, and he gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. Um, and the beautiful thing about people, about this, is that people are in our lives that are praying to something regularly. They may not know what they are seeking or what they're praying for, but there are people that are ready to give their lives to Jesus if they are just given an explanation of who Jesus is, um, an opportunity to say yes to Jesus. The cool thing is, and I have seen this happen, um, that God will give visions and speak to those who are not yet Christian, to those who yet do not identify as Christian. And this happened just a, a month ago in my apartment. A friend came over. She had just broken up with her boyfriend, and she was devastated. She's not a follower of Jesus, but I have been trying to walk with her for a long time. And during this prayer time, she got this vision of Jesus with her. She's like, oh, my gosh, I see this, this person. It's a man. I'm like, do you feel peace or do you feel... Uh, fear. And she's like, I feel a lot of peace. Like he's protecting me. I'm like, oh my gosh, I think that's Jesus. Well, that's the Holy Spirit at least. So um, God will speak to people and he's speaking to people now, even those that are not yet Christian, like Cornelius. Um, Cornelius was consecrating himself. He was praying regularly. He was a man of justice. And we also see that Peter was consecrating himself. So God is speaking to others who are also consecrating themselves. It is my firm conviction that as revival begins to happen again, as more and more of us are praying in this generation for a new wave of the kingdom of God to come through, he's speaking to a few of you. He's speaking to those of you that might be called to consecrate yourselves, to pray. If you have this insatiable desire to pray more, or if you are noticing your friends are starting to come to church regularly, it's like, what's up with that? Or they're studying the word a little bit more. What is, why is that happening? There's a new awakening and a hunger and thirst for righteousness, for the ways of God. Well, Peter was already there. Peter was consecrating himself as well. He was praying. He was up on the roof, as we saw, just chilling up there waiting for his food. He was hungry. And um, he was praying, but he was keeping the hours of prayer as a devout follower of the way would do. And, um, and in this time of prayer, God gives them this pretty awesome vision. And in this vision, it is, uh, it's very interesting. In verse 11, 
It says, he saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Well, this was against the law of the Jews. And um, there are numerous Levitical laws that prohibit the eating of four um, uh, of hooved animals, of four-footed animals, and the eating of reptiles and birds, that was not allowed. So to hear this voice saying, get up, kill, and eat these things, it was like, oh, no, no, God, surely not, Lord, I cannot do that. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. And in Peter's worldview, these things were unpure. They were unclean. It was not right for him to eat them. But then the voice says, speaks again, and says to him a second time, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. So this is interesting, and God doesn't do this just two times. He does it three times to signify to Peter, I'm serious about this. This is me saying these things. You can trust this. Um, but Peter doesn't immediately go off to kill a four-legged animal or to kill a lizard and to have that for lunch. He doesn't. He actually waits, and he listens for the Holy Spirit to reveal, for God to reveal, what does this vision mean? What could it mean? So Peter gets this vision as he's consecrating himself, and um, in this vision, I believe that God is expanding Peter's imagination of who can be accepted into the kingdom of God. Now, if you think about your life, when I, in 2007, when my life was really hard, I could not imagine the Lord bringing my brother back to him. I could not imagine the Lord bringing my dad back to him. In this season of my life, my imagination was limited to see my brother or my dad ever worshiping God. And it was such a sad reality. It was a sad vision to live into. In this vision, is there someone in your life that you're like, I just have a hard time? You know, and I was praying for my brother and my dad for over 10 years. Over 10 years. Is there someone in your life that you think, oh, it's kind of impossible for me to envision this happening? Well, this was Peter's life right now. It was like, it's kind of impossible for me to be able to eat something like that, God. But God is about to rock Peter's world, literally. Um, so revival is lit with a few people who are curious and want to play. There's this thing in the vineyard that is, um, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, everybody gets to play. That means everybody has access to participate in the works of God, in prayer and in ministry. Um, well, Peter uh, is able to see that this is actually true. This is the case. When he goes into... Um, into Cornelius's home, he sees not just um, Cornelius there, but his whole family. And the cool thing is that when revival starts to happen, you, people start to get wind of it, and they're like, oh my gosh, that, that sounds kind of interesting. I kind of just want to check it out and see what's happening. So Peter actually also takes a group of people from Joppa, because people are tar starting to find out, wait a minute, Peter had this vision, and he's going where? He's going to uh, speak at a pagan person's house? That's against the law, but let me check it out. I want to see what's happening here. I want to pray and see what the Lord can do. So this is a, a large group of people now are gathered in Cornelius's home. And Peter, as soon as he enters the house in verse 25, Cornelius meets him. And because Cornelius doesn't know any better, he bows at Peter's feet. And Peter's like, hey, 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 don't worship me. Um, I'm only a man myself. Um, 
there's this, and when revival leadership happens, when you're seeking the Lord for revival, people might be prone to worship you. Um, and this is very dangerous for those of us who are speakers or leaders in the church. If you're a minister or if you are a leader in your community or in your family group, people can look up to you. Recently, just yesterday, we heard of um, uh, John Vanier, uh, who is a leader of LART communities, and it, it's a ministry that ministered to people with disabilities. And it turns out that he had been um, abusing, sexually abusing some of the women in his ministry leadership. This happens when we worship the speaker, when we worship the leader, um, and we submit fully to that person instead of to God. And this leader, um, Peter, uh, refused any kind of adoration or any kind of allegiance to himself. Immediately, Peter exhibits humility and says, I am only a man. Um, when leaders fall into that kind of temptation, it's when they stop to have the kind of accountability that they need in their lives for consecration. Even I have an accountability group, and I have a prayer partner that prays for me regularly every month. Um, and I have, and I, I needed to change one um, person in my life. You have to be careful who your prayer partners are and who the people that are holding you accountable are. I had a friend who was holding me accountable for one particular sin. And then it turns out that um, when I confessed the sin to her, she, we would pray together and we would hold each other accountable and just walk in purity in that way. When I confessed the sin to her one, one day, she said, oh, well, um, I don't know if there's anything wrong with that anymore. And I was heartbroken. I was devastated. And I was like, what do you mean? What do, what do you mean you're not sure if there's anything wrong with that anymore? And she was like, well, you know, I actually like struggled with that too. And I've struggled with it for so long that I just don't think that it's a problem anymore. I feel like God can forgive me every time. And I'm like, uh, isn't that taking advantage of God's love and grace? And actually, that's not good. It's going to separate you from God even more. Um, there's a hardness of heart there that I'm hearing. But um, she was unwavering, and I was, and I made a, a decision. I cannot have someone hold me accountable who doesn't see Jesus and the way of His life the way that I do, um, the way that the Bible teaches. And so we have to be careful, even about who we are allowing in our spaces of accountability, and um, who we are allowing to preach the Word of God which sermons we listen to, the music we listen to, all of these things, um, we consecrate ourselves so that we can have a, cure, a pure connection with God, with the Holy Spirit. Um, and we're not perfect. I'm not perfect. I'm only a woman. Peter was only a man. And immediately he cast that down, like, don't follow me. I'm actually going to show you the person you're to follow. And he is so much better. He's perfect. He is the one that never fails. Um, so, Going back to um, to this uh, longing for revival, in 2009, two years after this devastating information about my dad, and um, a year later, my, my brother goes into jail. And the jail is about an hour away from where I'm doing ministry and an hour away from where my, my parents live. My parents couldn't visit him at all, so I had to visit him every single week. Well, I didn't have to. I wanted to. And so every weekend, I would visit my brother about an hour away, and I would pray for him and ask the Lord to really change his heart. And one day, one miraculous day that I was visiting him, my brother actually started to ask questions about God. Now, before that, I didn't want to talk to him about God because I, 
I knew that he would be resistant. My mom shoved God down his uh, throat. I just was like forcing him to go to church. And that just was not helpful. So one day when my brother started to ask more about Jesus, I was like, oh my gosh, revival is happening. And the reason I was able to share with my brother the good news is because I had practiced sharing the good news with my friends. Like I was ready in that moment. Um, in my fellowship in 2010, revival started to happen. One spring leadership team meeting, I, we, as I said, we were down to eight. And those eight, I was like, okay, we're going to come together. We're going to pray. We're going to fast and we're going to pray. So one leadership meeting um, in January of 2010, we go up to the mountains and we spend the weekend praying. And one night of prayer, the Lord does something crazy. He has one of our students, he prompts one of our students to confess a sin that he had been struggling with. And he wanted prayer for that. Well, that confession released the, the power of that, that the enemy had on this person to keep him in shame and keep him bound to that sin. As soon as he shared that sin with the community, another student said, I struggle with the same thing. Can you pray for me? And another student said, um, I... I struggle with this different sin, but I want to give it to Jesus tonight. And soon that Bible, that prayer night came, became a holy cleansing night where the Lord was cleansing us of all of the things we were holding on to that were not good for us to take back to school. And as the Lord cleansed us um, and removed all of those things from us, we came back to campus with this longing and hunger for evangelism and for prayer and for fasting that we had never seen before. By the end of that season of leadership with those particular leaders, we grew to over 60 students coming to the fellowship, and we had many students come to know Jesus. The Lord gave us revival in that moment. Revivals develop revival leaders. Um, when Peter uh, was asked to speak, he said in verse 34, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation, the one who fears him and does what is right. And then he goes on to share the word of God. And in verse 43, all the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Peter was ready in that moment to share the word of God. He told his story of revival, the story of walking with Jesus and how Jesus changed his life. And he was able to share that story quickly, immediately in that place, in that time. Is God calling some of you in Mission Vineyard to pray for revival or to pray for a certain aspect of your life to, for God to bring back to life? Um, I know revival doesn't fix every problem. Um, that's the beautiful thing. Revival is not dependent on leaders. It's dependent on the Holy Spirit. So revival begins first and foremost with you wanting more of the Holy Spirit in your life. Um, you might not know exactly what that will look like. It won't change all of your problems, but it's going to increase your faith. It's going to increase your hope that God can move any mountain. It's our work to be ready and to pray, um, to pray for what the Lord has you praying for. It's the Holy Spirit's work to draw people in, just as he did with little changes lives um, and lives that are submitted to Christ, li lives that walk in obedience to Christ. Um, again, People became baptized in Cornelius' home out of obedience of this new life with Jesus. Um, so over the last three years, the Lord brought me to South Texas about four years ago now. 
And um, as the Lord brought me out here from California, I was asking the Lord, what do you want me to do, God? Why am I here? And as soon as I moved here within the first month, the Lord broke my heart for South Texas. He just expanded my heart of what he could do and what he wanted to do. Um, Trinity University, our ministry there at the time, had about 20 or 30 students. Um, we were on three campuses. We had about three Bible studies. Um, but there were students that wanted more. They wanted more. Um, and then three years later, or during that time of consecration and prayer, I had our staff team praying for God's vision for this community. And then after that season of prayer, the Lord gave us this very specific calling to pray for revival in South Texas. So my staff, we, don't, we didn't know what that would look like. We were just asking God to bring these dead areas back to life, to renew our life and our hope in him. And after that season of prayer, um, Trinity University over the last three years uh, has grown to over 60 students. Um, we have 10 Bible studies happening on that campus right now. Um, around the area, we went from being on three campuses to about 11 campuses last year, and now we're on nine. Um, and we went from three Bible studies three, four years ago to now being on 15 Bible studies all across South Texas, and probably more than I'm aware of. 60 new followers of Jesus have come through in the last four years. 60 new believers that have submitted their lives to Christ. When you're in revival, sometimes you don't know what's happening. You don't know that you're in a season of revival, but you know it's a sweet wave that you have to ride, that you get to ride. Um, my heart is not ending there, though. My heart longs for more. We've had students that have fallen into sexual sin. Um, my personal sin issues of pride and uh, in insecurity and fear prop up. They come and come again. Um, there are seasons of revival. They go up and down. But the good news is that revival is not dependent on me. It's dependent on the Holy Spirit. And my invitation for you is, will you consecrate yourselves is, will there be an area of your life that you long to press into faith and seek God for revival? I have been praying. Uh, I have been praying for 20 years for a husband. If there are seasons of revival in ministry and in leadership, yeah, that's a long time. I know it's pretty awesome. <laughs> if there's any season of ministry that is super joyful and fun, there's seasons, there's places of my life that are super dry and dead. It feels like dead, like barrenness. But God gives me faith for those moments too of no life. Um, so both can go coexist. You can have seasons of great revival. Great, many things happening in our church, in the kingdom of God. But there can also be seasons of pain. There, there can also be places of pain. And God can speak into those places too. I'm not saying revival will cure everything in your life. It will not. Revival will not heal all of your wounds, all of the emotional hangups that you have. But revival will draw you closer to the heart of God, his love for you. And it will increase your faith for those areas that do feel like the wilderness. So let me pray for us as we close. Holy Spirit, I thank you so much that you bring revival. You brought revival to my brother who is now uh, um, married and with three children and taking his family to church every single Sunday. We praise you, Lord, for that. Um, 
We praise, we praise you for bringing my dad back to life with you um, for the ways that he, that my dad is leading and, um, and ministering to my family. Um, yeah, the ways that you're using him to minister to others in our community as well, to share your good news with others. Lord, I pray for our church that there would be people that are um, desiring for, yeah, I, I do believe actually our church is in the beginning of a season of revival. There's a beginning, the, the church has, you've already started to use it, Lord, for your kingdom purposes. And I pray, Lord, that um, there would be people who are starting to feel this holy longing for more, for the church to be, to see more of who you are. And um, I just want to ask you if you feel like during any time of hearing these stories, your heart was shaking or you felt a warmth over you or you just felt like, I want to learn what it's like to pray for revival. I want to, would you please raise your hand and I want to pray for you. Um, thank you. Thank you. So, Lord, I, I pray for our sisters and brothers, our family that raise their hands, that want to know how to pray for revival. I pray that you increase in them a heart and a longing that is unsatiable. Um, Lord, I pray that you give them dreams and visions and let them see with their eyes, let them see the first fruits of people coming to know you, of people being transformed by you and by their prayers. Holy Spirit, I pray that um, you give them uh, an endurance and perseverance in the law for the long haul, um, that you would strengthen the work of their hands, strengthen them by the power of your Holy Spirit. And lastly, I want to pray for those of you, um, if you feel like there's a block, you, you feel like in your heart, like you're saying, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. If you feel like you have a block in praying for more of the Holy Spirit, praying for revival, um, I invite you to raise your hand, and I also invite you to receive prayer ministry after church. So if there's a block that you just want to acknowledge before the Lord today, will you please raise your hand? All right, Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you are the one who is um, holy. You are the one that can move the mountains. I thank you, Lord, for the teachability and the openness of this community to receive from you, to want more of you. Um, Lord, I pray that you would remove any chains that are keeping people bound to hopelessness or to not being able to see what your revival can do. I pray that you please release people, um, free them up, Lord, to have visions and dreams of how you can bring new life to their communities. And Lord, I'm just so thankful that Mission Vineyard is in San Antonio, that we are here as um, as people that are lit up by your Holy Spirit, lit up by your fire, and we can light others up who are ready. There are people in our city that are ready to submit to you, that are ready to follow you, Lord. Will you take us to those places and give us your words to say, here, would you like to know more about this God who changed my life? He can change yours too, and he, give you, he can give you eternal, everlasting hope. So come, Holy Spirit, would you please minister to our church? This week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.